background as a student working in an outpatient PT clinic in North Philadelphia. Saw a guy that was referred and I was like, let me take this guy's, you know, blood pressure. He had a history of hypertension and his blood pressure, I'll I'll never forget because he walked in, no symptoms, like just casually. Blood pressure was just 240, I believe over like 134. It was like astronomically super high. This is episode 33 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto, joined by Corey Persick, and today we are speaking with Rich Severin about the importance of cardiovascular screening in musculoskeletal physiotherapy. Uh, My name is Rich Severin. I am a uh, cardiopulmonary uh, board-certified specialist PT based in Chicago. Um, I completed PT school at the University of Miami down in Florida, and uh, then went to a clinical residency program at the William S. Middleton VA Medical Center in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, And I had kind of like a a dual partnership with the VA there and the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Um, And following that, I did an orthopedic residency program. It's a little little strange to do two residencies. that was to kind of bridge some of the stuff I was doing with cardiovascular um, PT and orthopedic PT or cardiopulmonary PT and orthopedic PT. Um, and that's actually where the Vitals Revitals kind of campaign emanated from. And we can talk about that. We can have that conversation about that. And then uh, transition to do my PhD here at um, UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago, where I were hoping to be done <laughs> soon with uh, the COVID pandemic is kind of affecting everything. But yeah, the focus of my dissertation is looking at um, basically the impact of obesity on breathing, um, is particularly during exercise with a focus on the respiratory muscles and ventilatory efficiency. But um, we can unpack that if we want to as well. And I also teach in the, the DPT program here, and I'm faculty at uh, Baylor's hybrid DPT program um, as well. So bit of a busy guy, <laughs> but, uh, and I coordinate our bariatric rehabilitation program too at UIC. What made you interested in doing those two different specialties? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. So, um, I, at the end of residency in Wisconsin, I had a couple opportunities, um, you know, to do, uh, my PhD in a few, di- a few different great institutions and had some other opportunities along with that, you know, I, I, I felt there were still more things to learn about musculoskeletal assessment, um, even though I just finished a cardiopulmonary, you know, like um, residency, but there were still areas I felt like, man, I really just want to get really solid at this. And um, even if I decided to go into cardiopulm full time, so because I was seeing musculoskeletal issues in those populations all the time, all the time. And I was like, man, I, you know, I wish I could manage it a little bit better. And then with going to UIC, I'd have the opportunity to work with some of my, um, I guess, I, I can say this you know, without exaggeration, my heroes or, or role models or idols um, in the field of rehab. So Ross Serena and Shane Phillips, um, Shane Phillips being my PhD mentor and Ross being on my dissertation committee, who's the chair here at UIC. And these are guys I've heard, whose research I've been reading um, for a long time and you know, the opportunity to work with them, uh, plus being in a big city, you know, um, led me to coming to here. And it was, the, long, the long plan was even when I was offered that 
um, position here at UIC for the residency was, was to transition to research, just do my PhD here. Um, but yeah, so that's, it's a complicated answer because it's really atypical. Um, and you know, I didn't come just for the residency. I came for what I was going to do kind of after that too. So yeah. And there's teaching opportunities that came with it that like weren't necessarily guaranteed wherever I was going. So and then what got you into the whole vitals campaign? Yeah, so uh, kind of almost the inverse of what you know, my experience is during residency in, um, in Wisconsin. So when I was doing my ortho residency, um, you know, we at UIC or UI Health, what we call ourselves now for the hospital system, um, we see patients primarily from the west side and south side of Chicago. I'm not sure how much you know about our city, but those are pretty... Um, you know, they're, they're under-resourced um, areas, right? Low SES, a lot of chronic health issues. So, you know, our patients will come to us with a 20-year history of low back pain. And we, we, we'd get excited as residents, like, oh, we got, we got a new ACL injury. Like, you know, that just, it's just rare. We didn't, we didn't see a lot of it. And then what came along with a lot of those chronic conditions, or this, the population you were seeing, were, were cardiometabolic disease, right? We saw patients with hypertension diabetes, obesity, inactivities, all kinds of different things. I'm like, man, like, you know, thinking back to rest, these are kind of the same patients I was seeing in my cardiopulm residency, but I was seeing them for the heart and lung issues and metabolic issues. Like, I'm like these are the same exact patients. And I would be taking blood pressures. We'd be monitoring all, ki all kinds of different you know, vitals during exercise. I'm like, why aren't we doing this here? Does it make any sense? Because again, we just see it. We, it would be rare for us to not see a see a patient that had hypertension, and like our data that you know we eventually led to a study to look at this supports that. I mean, it's 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 pretty common. You know, I think a lot of PT students often. I'm sorry, I'm rambling a little bit here, maybe in my soapbox, but uh, you know, I think a lot of PT students when they enter school have this belief that you know they're going to be go out and working with like young, you know, athletic populations that are super fit as like. Have you, have you read any data? Do you know all the, I mean, I don't know about Canada. You guys are in Canada, probably a little bit healthier than we are. But in the United States, you know, unfortunately, being healthy and, and healthy living and, and not and free from disease, right, um, which isn't just health, but uh, is rare, right? I, I mean, it's, I mean it's six in 10 Americans have a chronic condition. Four in 10 have two. 66% are obese or overweight. And, you know, and our, the populations that most PTs treat are, you know, over 46. Like, you're going to be treating an older population. These things become more prevalent. So, you know, you need to be aware of these things. because That's the populations you will see every day. And we know the association between, you know, healthy living or healthy living behaviors and chronic conditions. We know that these are kind of the same patient in some respect, I think a study came out in BGSM that like um, the risk of chronic, like I think patients with chronic musculoskeletal pain, and I know it's a charged word, musculoskeletal pain, but um, it's, I think it's two times more likely to have cardiovascular disease. Like these are the connections pretty, pretty strong. Um, so yeah, it's just like you, you look at how all these things intersect, like you're going to see it. So that's where it kind of came from, that we're seeing these patients often over and over again. And there wasn't any, there weren't any guidelines on what to do either. And we just had a paper that came out that, you know, 
provide some guidelines on kind of what to do. Cause I felt in our research supports that, that, you know, people don't screen cause they don't really know what to do. It's that it's like the Schrodinger's box or the cat, whatever box, cat, cat mm-hmm. box. Um, that if you like have a situation an unknown and you could, you know, that, you know, in terms of its outcome, instead of like having to deal with the outcome, you just like avoid the decision. And I think that, that that's, with a lot of different things in our profession. And I think cardiovascular risk screening is, is, a, is part of that too, that if you don't know how to handle a situation, if it's bad, like you're just not gonna, you're gonna avoid that altogether, which I think is a, not a good, not a good, not a solution. That's just avoiding having to make, find a solution. So, yeah. What's the education like in the schools there for cardiovascular screening and all that stuff in MSK? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it is, it's a, I think we're, we're doing a lot better. I, I think with the Vitals Revitals campaign, which is now, you know, fully integrated within the cardiopulmonary section. So it started to something that was kind of like, um, you know, uh, a de, like de facto affiliated with our, with our specialty council or specialty academy here or section um, of the APTA. And now it's like an official thing. So there's a lot more support and recognition of how to, like that this is important. But uh, Pam Bartlow is a colleague of mine, published a paper in 2017 um, in Cardiopalm PT Journal, looking at the, the, the qualifications of, of people who teach Cardiopalm content and how the courses are taught. I'm not sure if it's different in Canada, but you know, so it's, there's, there's some variability. Some programs don't have it as a standalone course. Some programs don't have a Cardiopalm specialist teaching it. Um, there's not a lot of us. I mean, I think that, I think we're at our highest ever. We're like at 300 and there's like 256 programs. And then there are certain cities where there's hubs of us. There's like, you know, in Chicago, there's like, you know, I think there's like maybe 20 of us and then we're scattered across a few different programs. And, but there's some place in the country that aren't any specialists. Um, so there, that's going to tie into the variability on how just the overall cardiopalm is taught. And then I think a big problem in a lot of PT education um, programs that's it's taught in silos that you have your musculoskeletal courses for musculoskeletal patients you have your neuro courses for your neuro patients your you know and so on and so forth but you don't realize and so I'm kind of glad we, we've done it both programs that teach that that we we kind of break down those walls that you're we're teaching you guys system management that you can apply anywhere right um, so you don't have true orthopedic patients. You just have patients with orthopedic limitations to function and movement, but all these other systems can contribute potentially. So, um, I'd say, I'd say there's a, a bit of variability and the data supports that. And, and those are some of the reasons why, um, it's definitely different than other countries. Our practice act for cardiorespiratory management is a little bit different. I know in, in pretty much everywhere else in the world, PTs do vent management. They do you know, there's no respiratory therapists in most countries, they're just respiratory PTs. Um, and we decided to give that one away, but you know, um, so it's a little different internationally, but yeah. Okay, uh, why don't we get into a case then and then we can ask you some more questions about all that later. Yeah, absolutely. What always sparks my memory, um, and this is this is something that once we started this campaign um, that, you know, we started this vital story, we heard more and more of these stories, but one goes back when I was a student um, working in a, an outpatient PT clinic in North Philadelphia, which is originally from Philadelphia. I was back home for that one. 
And North Philadelphia is a, a similar to like West Side, South Side, Chicago, you know, under-resourced area. Um, and again, it's orthopedic clinic. Saw a guy that was referred and I was like, let me take this guy's, you know, blood pressure. Cause he had a history of hypertension um, and had some other issues. And I was like, let, me, let, me, let me grab this blood pressure. And his blood pressure, I'll, I'll never forget, because he walked in, no symptoms, like just casually. Blood pressure was just 240, I believe, over like 134. It was like astronaut, like super high. And I was like, let me check that again. And again, same thing, high measures, high measures. And then I kind of like went to my CI. I was like, what do we do? He's like, I'm not really sure. Like, I mean, you know, this guy, you know, you know, ask him a little bit more, some more questions. So I interrogated him a little bit more, found out that, you know, he, uh, because of his insurance or however it worked down, that he was not able to get access to his medications. He was medicated, um, like, you know, had been diagnosed, was receiving care for it, but something changed with his insurance. And that happens pretty often in public people with public insurance that like their providers change or their insurance plan just changes and there's all kinds of backlogs and stuff. And sometimes they can go weeks without getting their meds, um, even if they have access to a pharmacy nearby. So he hadn't been medicated in like, I think like 48 hours. And you know, that, that was one of his reasons why. He was a little frustrated that you know, we ended up holding, I contacted his, we've, I think we dug a little bit and got, got a hold of his PCP. Um, we were able to get his medications squared away and he went to go see a clinic and got it taken care of. Um, but that, that always sticks with me. It's like, man, like, you know, I think a lot of people believe that, you know, the, the, the argument that we got off into the Vitals or Vitals campaign was, well, I don't need to do it on every patient. I'll, I'll do it when it's indicated. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, oh, like, you know, based on symptomology and stuff or, or report. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I just, I've had, I've, I've had patients and, multiple PTs, everyone's had this, who walk into your clinics completely asymptomatic, because we know hypertension, even at critical levels, is asymptomatic um, before it becomes, you know, uh, an emergency, and you get a really serious problem. So, you know, um, yeah, that example, his, that case was an example of that. This guy, had we not screened, uh, who knows what would have happened to him, right? So, and then, uh, you know, that's something I, we still, run into issues with here. Um, so yeah, that, that was one in particular. And that, yeah, that, that's unfortunately a common scenario, uh, uncontrolled hypertension in the patient who is diagnosed, who is medicated, but like for some reason, others stop taking their meds. Like I think 40% of people stop taking their meds within the first year because of the orthostasis and dizziness they encounter, um, which we can talk about like the education pieces for that. Um, and, you know, and then there's 50% of patients who are, again, diagnosed or aware, diagnosed, receiving treatment, 50% are effectively controlled. And, um, you know, that's a coin flip. So it's, even if someone comes into your, so people would say like, well, if I got like someone has a, uh, you know, they, I can see they're medicated for it. Like they're, they're fine. They're on medications. I'm like, are you sure they're taking their meds? Like, it's not, not a guarantee, man. So, um, so yeah, that, that case in particular sticks. Six of mine always comes to mind. Were you screening regularly at that point, or was there something? It was the history that prompted you to do the it, blood pressure reading. 
it was the history. Um, you know, I mean, I was still a student. This was back, this is like eight years ago. Um, you know, thankfully in PT school, we had a really, we had a, a two legends teaching us cardio poem and Meryl Cohen, who's one of the first specialists um, PTs. She was a cardio, the first three, most, most maybe PTs in America don't realize this, but the first specialty um, or specialist in America where card, all three of them were cardio poem and I happened to be taught by one of them, Meryl Cohen. And then Larry Cahalan, who's an, you know, an early mentor, now colleague of mine, um, you know, so we came up with this, you know, she had this mantra that everyone has a heart and lungs. So I wasn't routinely screening on every patient like I do now. Um, but like that, that experience and then my time in Wisconsin led to me to believe like, we should just be doing this on everybody. Like there's, there's just too many, too many such scenarios where, you know, we're going to miss something um, that we could have, we could have caught. Um, but yeah, not, not at that scenario now. So even in a younger population, oh yeah, is uh, is important. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, if you look at, I mean, I don't again, I'm not sure the demographics in Canada, but United States, you know, we'd be kidding ourselves, you know, if we didn't real recognize that the inactivity, obesity, and diabetes um, concerns in children, right? Uh, I mean, there's a study that came out in, in the, I think, the BGSM publication in 2016 that uh, compared the fitness scores of children, school-age children, on, it was the, the BEAT test, yo-yo test, whatever people call it, permutation of that. Um, and like the United States was like third from the last, you know. I mean, granted, it's a systematic review of other studies. It was like, you know, but I mean, it's, I mean, it's a case in point. We got some serious issues. And that's those unfit kids, inactive kids, or kids who have unhealthy parents. And again, our adult population is widely unhealthy. Um, that they're going to have, we're going to have even probably bigger concerns with, with that. So, um, and then there's certain congenital defects that you could probably pick up by coarctation of the aorta, maybe even hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in certain cases as well, having an abnormal blood pressure. So, um, tough thing is like guidelines for kids, you know, even pediatric patients, uh, like young, young kids can be, you know, maybe a little bit different, but, it, we should still be screening, um, you know, and I have, uh, you know, I don't know if I'll be the person to tackle the pediatric question or problem because I don't, I don't work with kids. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think there, there is absolutely a place in screening for kids, um, you know, even beyond just blood pressure and heart rate and stuff like that. Cause you know, the you know, sudden cardiac death issues and stuff there that you know, the United States does not do particularly well or as well as it could in screening for, for that. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, yes. Is there anything else you're including in your screen beyond heart rate and blood pressure? So that's where things for me get a little bit, like that's where I modify things here and there um, in terms of screening. I mean, everyone's going to be blood pressure and heart rate. Um, that, cause, cause that, that's going to give me the, the most bang for my buck in a certain sense. Um, I'll do pulse oximetry usually as well too. That's going to be normal in a lot of the patients I'm seeing. But um, if anything else, you know, you know, that's where I start going by presentation or indication. So temperature, if it's indicated, um, you know, respiratory rate, if it's indicated, stuff like that. But yeah, blood pressure and heart rate, I'm going to take on everybody. And everything else is going to be a little bit of an offshoot. Yeah. What's the, uh, or, or is there any pushback do you get from, you know, when you talk to clinicians about, you know, trying to incorporate this into an assessment? Oh. Because there's, you know, so many directions you can go with. When yeah, you're in front of you, right? Like, where's the oh. and all that stuff? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, how much time you got? You know, the first first two years of this, I had some of the worst things said to me um, from people that I had respected. Um, emphasis on had. But um, the yeah, jokingly, but yeah, there were there were there was some there was some apprehension um, to it, you know, that people thought that this was adding an, an, an unnecessary step to the examination that, um, you know, time wise is just, it's just not tenable. And I liken it to like, this is not something that we're adding in. It's not, an, it's not, you know, it's not an ancillary thing we're adding on. It's something we're, that we're putting back in that should have been there. Cause you can't thoroughly do a medical screening on someone right, without screening the cardiovascular system. And the only way to determine if someone has appropriate blood pressure and heart rate to proceed with anything you're gonna do with rehab, you have to measure it. Like you can't ascertain from medical history, patient report, chart review, you have to measure these things. So the way I view it is like, you, you absolutely need to do it. And people are like, well, how, another question we get like, how do you bill for it? How can I, I can't bill for this. I'm like, how do you bill for an MMT? How do you bill for a range of motion? How do you, it's all lumped together into one code. Like that's another, I mean, that was another argument. I'm like, that's just dumb. You don't, we don't have an a la carte menu for what you do in an examination. It's an overarching thing. And my thoughts are too, even if you want to throw it in for therapeutic exercise, you know, if we're, yeah, that's part of your prescription, right? You're determining, you're measuring a baseline, hopefully measuring during the measuring and recovery to see if someone, another buzzword we use in PT, patient tolerated exercise, well, how do you, are you making that assessment? Are you making that, you know, that, are you supporting that hypothesis, right? So, um, or that observation. So yeah, there's one of the other pushbacks. The other was people worrying that it would over-medicalize patients, which I, I, I can see as a concern in the United States, we tend to fix things more with medications on the front line versus, uh, you know, maybe trying non-pharmacological means to manage. Um, and my, my thoughts are that that is such a, that's probably not going to happen. So first line recommendations for any patient with hypertension, first off, no one gets diagnosed off a single measurement. Like the measurement you take as a PT is not gonna diagnose them with anything. That's not, our, we don't diagnose medical disorders. We can diagnose movement disorders. So you're screening is what you're really doing. You're screening it, making sure they're appropriate for what you're gonna do as a specialist you know, mid-level provider. And you send them back, you know, or have that conversation with a physician, which I've never run into a situation where they weren't appreciative um, or, you know, adversarial. Like they were like, oh, you're screening those things. Like I, it builds rapport often from when I've heard from other clinicians, like it's a good rapport building thing. Um, and then patients, if they are, you know, positive or screen positive and, you know, in, in, in America, they have to have, I believe, three elevated clinic visits within the medical clinic, and then they're sent home with either an ambulatory blood pressure monitor or a home monitor, and then they're diagnosed. Like, it's never, like, a single screen. It doesn't, that's not how it works. So, like, that's just an overstated concern. My thoughts were, if we, you know, we, there's a lot of conversations in PT in the States, at least, about trying to become more of these, like, healthy living providers, right, that we're doing some nutrition counseling, some sleep counseling, some, you know, physical activity counseling. Great. But like the concern we have is, well, people don't associate us with those things. 
It's like, well, because we've kind of siloed ourselves in some respects to like the, again, the musculoskeletal management, neuromanagement, while like not embracing the cardio home area that I think if we associated ourselves more with that and did these things more routinely and people knew and associated cardiovascular risk screening with PTs, that we could be part of the conversation of doing those things, right? You can't expect people to associate you with things you don't associate with yourself. So my thoughts are if we start enhancing our screening and there's more of these conversations with other providers that we may eventually be part of the front line in managing hypertension and other cardiometabolic diseases through the services that we provide already. So um, it's a bit of a roundabout answer, but um, yeah, that's, that's my hope is eventually that, you know, we, we are part of the management too. Um, so even if patients do test, you know, screen positive. So, yeah. What cutoff values do you use when would you refer someone on? Yeah. So we, ha- we, we, we list that in our, um, in our paper. So uh, that's, that's a great thing. So um, the, there's a wide range of stuff that you, a wide range of blood pressures a patients can still work with you. And that's fine. Like um, we give our absolute cutoff, um, really at 180 systolic over 120 diastolic. And that's really because we're getting into uh, a, hypertension, a, a critical hypertension, a hypertensive crisis, um, where you're at a, at a concern for basically flooding the downstream microcirculatory, microcirculatory system in organs um, and causing some damage to, to those organs, particularly the brain, the kidneys, and even the heart. You know? So that's kind of where we're at, right? And then within that, patient, critical blood pressure, no symptoms, right, of organ damage, you do your cranial nerve screening, all that stuff, stroke screening, all that stuff, um, then that's just really a conversation, maybe more with the PCP, you know, and then you know, that could be even, you know, an urgent care if it, if it need to be or a, or a follow-up with the PCP to get medically managed or adjust their medications. So that's one direction. Symptoms with those blood pressures, EMS visit. I, that's a, that's a, a medical emergency. Really anything below that, it's kind of a judgment call, right? It's a judgment call. And like, I think that gives you, a, that's another thing people are like, well, I'm, everyone's going to be inappropriate. I'm like, you, you got up to 180 systolic. Like that's a pretty wide range. Um, and then within there, you know, I think we, you know, for blood, for resistance training, you know, anything over 160 at baseline systolic over hundred diastolic. And that's just based off of guidelines from the um, American College of Sports Medicine and AHA. But um, yeah, so that's, that's our rough guidelines. Within that though, we, we, we say like these are these are recommendations. I believe the ACSM goes up to as high as 220 systolic and that's for aerobic exercise. But my thoughts are like a lot of PT clinics are, are kind of on an island. Like you're, if something goes wrong, like what are you gonna do? Right. So, um, you know, I mean, and those PTs aren't ACLS certified. I, I've surveyed PTs clinics, not all of them even have an AED. Right. So like, you know, it's a judgment call. Like, so I, I had patients sometimes in, in residency that were above 180, you know, but I was in a cardiac rehab facility with a crash cart code team, emergency rooms right upstairs. I'm ACLS certified. You know, we had several other people who were as well in ECG monitor. I'm like, well, I'm going to do a little bit of aerobic exercise, see how you respond, actually see if we can acutely lower it, if we give you a little bit of recovery afterwards. 
Um, so it's a judgment call. Again, really more if can you manage things if it goes absolutely wrong. So if you had someone that did have, you know, they're above that cutoff point, yeah. within the article that I was reading that they wrote and published was about kind of retesting it another like five minutes later and, uh, and just making sure like positioning is all similar yeah. between testing. So you have yeah. a guys method that you, you kind of do with, uh, within your clinic. Yeah. So the AH, so it's actually a good kind of a, a charge question too. So the AHA um, has a physician statement, which we, we reference within ours on like how the patient is supposed to be positioned for blood pressure measurement. So that's seated um, in a chair, seated for at least five minutes prior to measurement, you know, because um, they're walking in, in your clinic, you know, they're, it's going to affect their resting pressure. Because This is always supposed to be a resting measure that we're making our assessments and their assumptions for assessment are under that there's a resting pressure, right? Um, you know, so if we don't have those conditions, we can't use data, you know, comparable data to make, make, our, make our, our comparisons. Um, so seated back in a chair, back supported, arm supported, legs uncrossed, feet flat, no talking. Um, and no talking things actually, I don't think people will realize this. Like we, we in our lab, we can, we can measure blood flow and stuff like that, you know, dynamically. Um, you'd be surprised how much like that changes just from talking. Um, so like no talking um, and arm supported and, oh, and, and empty bladder. So you'd be surprised like how much that can affect those measurements. So sometimes it can, be, it can, it can increase them by more than 10, um, 15 systolic. Uh, and there was actually a paper, this is a, this is a big problem in medicine, that uh, there was a paper that came out in JAMA, I think in 2018, and they investigated a group of first-year medical students, and they used first-year medical students because those are supposed to be people that have just finished their basic physical exam. Most physicians haven't taken a blood pressure in 20 years, right? They don't, they don't really do it. It's usually the, the medical assistant there. You've all been to a primary care clinic or maybe a nurse who's there. Um, so the first students had just learned this stuff, right? Uh, I think it was 500 and 509, 519 first year medical students. Then they had them set up a patient, take blood pressure, and they were looking for these positioning um, errors. Let me ask you, I don't know if we referenced this in the paper, I can't remember. But uh, how many do you think set up the patient correctly out of 500 and I think it's 509. Yeah. How many do you think without making any errors? I'd say less than half. You'd be correct in saying less than half. hundred. So less, less than that was one, one out of I think of over 500. Right. Wow. So, uh, which speaks of, you know, a big concern, um, and that's kind of what we put out those videos, which are, are hyperlinks to that in, in the article um, we put out from, from the section on that. Because, yeah, tech, technique, if your technique is not good, like your value, the value of that measurement is just, it's, it's not valuable, right? Because you're, all of our comparisons from standard data measured under standardized conditions and positions. So that's violated, right? We cannot make that, that's, you know, that's just a, you know, way how we are supposed to interpret data in, in, in any respect, but um, yeah, that's that's uh, yeah, that's a big big concern. But yeah, that is the standard positioning. And then I guess if they're giving a home monitor to someone, because uh, you said you have to get three blood pressure mm -hmm. readings that are yep. above a certain cutoff, 
Yeah. So those three, they have to be in clinic or? Yeah, so, so diagnosis, um, and it's gonna depend to a degree. I mean, if someone comes in your clinic as a physician and their pressure is like 220, they're, they're probably gonna be medicated that day. Um, you know, that's a little bit of a different scenario, but if someone's like routinely walking in 150, 140 and like, okay, like, you know, let's go see what it is at, at home. But it's three, three clinic visits of elevated blood pressure. And then they're sent home with a home blood pressure monitor or a, um, an ambulatory monitor. So home blood pressure monitor, they'll just measure it four times usually a day. Um, an ambulatory measure measures it, which are a little bit more expensive. They're like a as high as about $10,000, pretty expensive. Uh, and sometimes they don't always make it back <laughs> to the clinic, so they're a little, you know, um, but yeah, they'll send those out or they get damaged. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they take it about every half hour. So it gives you, you know, for an, an innumerable amount of reasons, someone's blood pressure can be artificially elevated in clinic. So you wanna really see, you know, what's their pressure realistically around you know, the day and do they dip at night? That's another kind of indicator too. Does it drop during the night? So there's a lot of different things they can take from those measurements. Um, but that's how someone should be by the book diagnosed with hypertension. Again, does that always happen? Maybe not, but that's how it's supposed to happen. Then also in that article, you talk about measuring in both arms because there can be differences between the two. What accounts for those differences? Uh, well, it shouldn't be much difference. It should be, I think, less than about 10 normally. Um, yeah, it could be a lot of different things, but it, it should be pretty, pretty much the same. So it shouldn't be much of a difference at all. You usually only measure in one arm? Uh, for, for most intensive purposes, yes. Um, you know, there are some, I mean, if, you, if you're concerned about a, you know, a aortic aneurysm, abdominal aortic aneurysm, you know, that would prompt you to screen both. But I think the AHA does recommend screening both, but like it's not always necessary to do. Um, I think we highlight that as well. But uh, yeah, there really shouldn't be, there shouldn't be a difference. Like that's kind of what we're trying to emphasize there, that it, they should be pretty, pretty similar. You spoke a little bit about uh, blood pressure during exercise. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, one of the things that you said uh, was if someone's blood pressure is high, bringing them through a little bit of aerobic exercise and then seeing changes from that session. Yeah. What would you expect to see with that? Like how immediate are changes on someone's blood pressure with exercise? Yeah, so let's unpack a few things, right? So blood pressure responses during exercise, right? Should be a progressive increase in heart rate and, and systolic blood pressure, about 10 to systolic per met increase and about uh, nothing with diastolic and then a 10 tick blood pressure or heart rate increase per, per met. Um, and then recovery should have that gradual 12 beats per minute after a minute and back to normal resting in three. Blood pressure should come to about 90% of what it was at peak at three minutes. Um, and then normally back to rest at, at six minutes post exercise. Now there are some patients that after that, you know, six minute recovery period, they, their blood pressure not only returns to baseline, it dips, you know, a, a bit, right, below. Um, now, we th there's a lot of things that happen during exercise. One, you have this, you know, functional sympatholysis. So, you know, you have a global sympathetic response, which, you know, raises you know, contractility, heart rate, all those different things. Then all the working tissue, which needs more blood flow, they have 
multiple different things that dilate blood vessels, right? That lice, the sympathetic response to the local vasodilation to a global sympathetic vasoconstriction, which helps shunt blood to where it needs to be. Um, so if you're doing whole body exercise, for example, every muscle is working, right? So you got, you know, a lot of different things dilating and the rise in blood pressure is really coming from changes in, in contractility, right? Um, and the return in stroke volume, up in stroke volume. So in, in recovery, if you've done especially whole body high intensity exercise, and you also have that endothelium or being stimulated, the ENOS producing nitric oxygen, um, which, or nitric oxide, which violates the vessels. So those factors, those local factors stay prolonged in terms of their, or, or are still acting on the vessel sometimes far beyond that six minutes in recovery. Um, and then we've lowered the sympathetic response. So sometimes you can see a dip. Um, and you also see the baroreceptors reset um, during exercise acutely. Um, so if they're used to being keeping things at a higher set level during exercise or during baseline, we feel hypertension, exercise kind of resets things to a degree and then maybe they reset to a lower level. So we're, we're finding that um, in some patients, they demonstrate this dipping in blood pressures post-exercise hypertension. This is not someone who's like symptomatic and dizzy. It's like it's, you know, acutely improving their blood pressure. The interesting thing is patients with hypertension typically demonstrate this more than those who don't. So those who with the worst status at baseline get the most from it in terms of the blood pressure lowering effects, which is fantastic. And kind of why I wish we would do this, like we would take ownership of this because like who else in healthcare is going to have someone exercise for an hour in their clinic, right? Besides a PT. Um, and um, those who demonstrate post-exercise hypotension, if they're a hypertensive patient at baseline and demonstrate post-exercise hypotension acutely um, in recovery, their prognosis for improving their blood pressure with exercise is pretty good. So there are, there's some unique value into taking these recovery blood pressures for, for hypertension management. So that's kind of post-exercise hypotension in a nutshell. How long would it take to see those long-term changes in hypertension? That's a great question. So, I mean, it, it, it depends, right? There are some patients that um, the, the PEH effects can last like hours after exercise, um, after an, just one acute bout. Um, you know, how long does it take for it to have long-standing effects? It, it's kind of going to kind of depend on what's what's the driver for their for their elevated blood pressure, right? Yeah, I think most of the evidence now, most of the research about they're, they're used like four to eight week protocols. But I mean, I mean, I've seen patients with you know a couple tick decreases in you know a couple of weeks of training. So it, it the the effects can be the effects are immediate. Um, the more consistent you are with it, the better the effects will be. And, uh, and then along with other things too, your sleep, your diet, you know, other factors, stress management, but yeah, the effect, the effects can, yeah, are immediate and, and can be very long lasting, even just with a single bout. I guess the, um, the equipment, unless you're doing just the manual way and like the automated cuffs and stuff are a bit different for the exercise testing. Yeah, so, um, you know, your standard automated cuff uses an, an oscillometric measure uh, method, which uh, measures the vibrations in the arterial wall as the cuff deflates. So, you see, as you 
compress it with the cuff, blood flow ceases. Um, you know, and normally when you're when you're you have laminar flow in, in the arteries, the vibrations of the walls are pretty pretty. Just, it's just it's ebbing and flow. It's not much change, so you don't really hear anything if you auscultate over it. Um, but if you compress it and then slowly release, right, you have turbulent flow, and that creates those those vibrations in the wall, which get detected by your oscillometric device. Um, and the point of maximum oscillation is detected, and that uses estimations to give you systolic and diastolic based off of that maximum point. Um, those, because they use vibration, right, that they're detecting through whatever the oscillograph that's in the, the device, the cuff, um, if someone's exercising or moving, it's going to completely destroy that signal, right? It's not going to be able, it's going to cause too much artifact, motion artifact. So those don't work um, during exercise. Um, so you, you, you have to use a manual measurement, which can be done, or there are very specialized um, automatic oscillatory, which use you know, the same oscillatory methods that you do with a manual cuff, but they do it with a, a, an automatic device. Um, those are used often in stress testing labs because it's a way you don't have to have a separate person doing blood pressures the whole time. You just have one person in the room, really. Um, and uh, they're a little bit cost prohibitive. So I don't think a PT clinic needs to go out and buy one of those things. But they are, they, I think they're pretty cool. I think they're pretty good. Some people, my friends in exercise, phys, and testing aren't too crazy about them. But um, so there's three different methods that you can utilize um, for measurement at, at baseline. And only two that really you can use during, during exercise, which is a manual way, uh, which gets really tough if someone's working out at a high rate. Like when we, in our testing lab, um, you know, it's, if someone starts jogging, it's not even worth it at that point, doing a manual measurement. Um, and then you're, um, you have the, then you have the automatic oscillatory method. And those I've, I've heard that's, you know, do work during jogging. So that's, that's an, a value to that too. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you're going to ask me this, but the charge question I always get asked is, you know, is there, is there a difference, you know, in terms of the reliability in measuring manually um, versus, automatic. And uh, I, want to, I want to put that to, to kibosh to that. They're, they're, they're comparable. There's no difference. The, 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 and really the gold standard measurement of blood pressure is using a mercury um, uh, sugamemometer. Like those aren't used anywhere because mercury is in, incredibly dangerous. Uh, you know, you, you may only see it in the office of physical plant when they calibrate your aneroid devices. So this, this, this belief that manual measurement is a gold standard is just wildly inaccurate because you're not using the right instrumentation. Like, you know, it's good to have both because your, your automatic devices can make mistakes. Um, but they're, they're, if the patient's set up, if the device is calibrated, if you, you know, all those things are as effective, which I think um, it has you know, been a good teaching point because that's a way to make it a little bit more time efficient because you don't have to set the patient up and do all the stuff. Um, and they also lower user error and the white coat effect too because you don't have to be in the room. That's why if you guys have you know, you've been to your primary care clinic, um, you have the nurse, whoever will take it and leave the room so they're not, no one's in the room with you. So 
Um, so there, yeah, if you want to use an automatic device to measure blood pressure at rest, go for it. I, I use one on myself at home. I take my blood pressure pretty much every day. So, yeah. Do you think that hypertension has an effect on the orthopedic conditions that we as physios would treat? So I know there's a lot of links with like metabolic syndrome and osteoarthritis and all of that. Yeah. So if we're not taking blood pressure and we're not catching that, is it impacting everything else we're doing? Yeah. So um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a simple answer to this and then there's a more loaded answer to this. <laughs> so the simple answer to this is no, um, in terms of like the condition. It's a more reflection maybe of, uh, I mean, vitals of any kind are a way for you to look at what is the homeostatic set point of this patient? Right? What What's their, because we know looking at the spectrum of different measures, right, people should fall within this range. Something's a little bit too low, something's a little bit too high, something's not right, right? Something is not, something's not good, right? Um, something needs to be corrected, right? So often for us in the States, pressure's not active. The person's, you know, obese or overweight or stressed, they're having other things that are causing their blood pressure to be elevated or their kidneys, or maybe there's something systemic going on, right? Or they're not sleeping well because sleep, even an acute bout of sleep deprivation can jack up your blood pressure, um, which is mediated through this, a lot of different other pathways we don't have to dive into. Um, but in terms of like, is your elevated blood pressure gonna make your knee pain worse? Probably not. Are this, is it gonna maybe be elevated in concert with maybe your chronic condition being worse? Probably, because like maybe the lifestyle that you're living or being, you know, the environment that's causing that lifestyle, right? Maybe if you live in a you know, disadvantaged area, you know, that it's gonna contribute to a body that's not healthy and you're gonna see these things kind of change concurrently, right? So um, now there are, right, you know, manual therapy things, right? If you're gonna mobilize someone's neck, Roger Carey and Alan Taylor in, in Nottingham have done a fantastic job um, on this, looking at, you know, vascular profiling, right, for patients undergoing spinal manipulation. And the idea is really, you know, this whole vertebral artery test, you know, antiquated, right? Not a lot of evidence. Let's look at, all right, is this patient, what's the condition of their arteries, right? Is this patient safe, you know, or, you know, to be put in these positions and mobilized? So for that, for determining whether or not someone is appropriate, um, but is that going to affect their conditions? Now, there it, now, the complex answer, which I, I don't know if you have time to really answer this, because I'm, I'm still kind of trying to get in the weeds on this myself. There is a thing called hypertensive, hypertension um, algesia, where you see different changes in pain sensitivity because different like, opioid receptors are affected in patients with hypertension when it's elevated. And that is like, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a physiologist, but I'm not a neurophysiologist. Like that, like, that is kind of deep in the weeds out of, out of my element. And, uh, but there is maybe a thread um, to where that could be you know, impacting different things. But, um, but yeah, in terms of management though, like it's, it's a big safety thing, right? Because if I want to do strength testing or training with someone like and their blood pressure is completely out of whack, like that, that's going to hurt them. It's going to put them in, at harm. Um, and it only takes one case, right? For it to be an absolute tragedy. So, um, but yeah, is it going to affect their condition? Probably not, but it's going to affect their safety. Right. And that's, that's the big thing. Anything else you want to touch on? 
Yeah, you know, um, I, I really want to, I mean, I, you know, the, the Vitals or Vitals campaign has been one of the more prouder things that I've, I've been a part of. I mean, I've created it um, and it's really kind of caught wind. And um, the thing that's uh, been really cool to see is how it's evolved um, from me just kind of ranting online about, hey, you guys got to do this stuff. Like now that, you know, we produced a, you know, a uh, study that, one of one our national research award, you know, it's for its impact on, on PT research. And we have these guidelines and, um, you know, so one, you know, if, if you're, if you're, and I was still pretty new, like it is, I was like, this all started during residency. It was a year out. And, you know, this this belief that you gotta, you know, you gotta wait, I guess, wait to do certain things or there's some like timeline, like just if you're, if you're passionate about something, go do it. Um, and the other, you know, especially if a question you think is important, like ask, talk about it, be vocal, right? Um, what's the, what's the thing lean in, is that Brian Brown or one of those people, right? Lean in like, you know, um, and then, um, I, I, I really think, um, you know, we, we were aided by having other people support it too. We had, you know, all, you know, some pretty decent personalities in the profession get behind it. And, you know, now it's a, it's a big thing and, you know, the changes coming, I think within the new, new graduates, you know, at least within the States. Um, you know, I, I've done some stuff. You guys are both Canadian. I know that. And we've, I've done stuff with Alberta um, as well. And, you know, I think it is a growing conversation nationally. We've got some colleagues in Italy that we're working with, hopefully doing some stuff in Kenya and in, in, in Africa and maybe in, in Asia that look at doing this from a global perspective. Because it, it's not just a problem here. It's a problem in a lot of places, right? Um, and I think PTs, have a role beyond just screening and management. And that's really going to be the third kind of phase of our campaign is to move, you know, the next step to the next step of now we screen the patient. Let's start finding ways to get this patient, you know, in our care to manage their, their, their healthy living behaviors, right? Sleep counseling, nutrition counseling, movement counseling, you know, blood pressure management. These are all things that are, are within our wheelhouse for the right patient, excuse me. But if we don't, if we don't even take blood pressure at baseline, there's no way that's going to be a solution. And I think you look at, you know, how reimbursement's changing and healthcare is changing. You know, the medical healthcare field is looking for someone to kind of rise to the occasion and, and address these patients because it's a, it's a growing problem there aren't enough cardiac rehab facilities out there to send these patients to. And not all the patients need to be in a cardiac rehab facility. Like um, they just need someone to give them some health coaching or counseling. We can be that person because there's a lot of us uh, or enough of us. And, you know, uh, that's a way to, you know, if we want to take a bigger piece of the pie or hold on to reimbursement, we're under a big fight here in the States. We're going to lose maybe 9% from Medicare and Medicaid. Well, if we can say, hey, not only can we manage your, all these other things, like we can manage probably the biggest problem in the United States, which is life, you know, healthy living behaviors. And I, I think this is a big part of that. So um, that's where our, our attention is really going to be with the next wave of this, of this movement campaign. So, yeah. Cool. And I think it's going to be the, the younger generations really kind of leading, um, you know, leading that charge for sure. Yeah, even in Canada, I see changes with, we have direct access here, and I think it's more common now in the States. Um, and just like advanced practice physio roles yep. kind of popping up. 
Yeah. So being able to do these, you know, the screening and some aspects of primary care, I guess, is really important. Oh yeah, I mean that. That's I mean that's that's the other big thing we talk about that in the paper too. Like, I mean, if you're a direct access provider, I mean, it's probably similar in Canada this year. Sometimes you might be the first person that person has seen. Even in the example I cited, we had a guy who sees his primary, he has a primary care physician, he just hasn't, hasn't seen him. And he was in the city. Um, obviously, lower SES, urban environment. But if you're in a rural area in the States, you may be the first provider someone's seen in years. Um, and if you want to be a direct access provider, I would say that, you know, if you want the job, you got to wear the uniform, right? Or, the, or you know, the suit, I guess. Um, same idea. I mean, that, that's what a primary care provider does. They screen systemic issues, right? Um, and your blood pressure and your heart rate are a pretty good window into how those things are functioning, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah and I think with the direct access changes here, like that's, that's got to be a big piece of it. Nice. Um, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so um, I guess I have my um, professional account and page, ptreviewer.com. So um, that's a, a site or I guess a resource that I've created um, that's just designed to give people, uh, to give people resources on um, different things in PT. So everything there is free and open access. I kind of believe in that. And uh, same on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, just at PT reviewer. Instagram is at PT underscore reviewer. There's someone who owns at PT reviewer that doesn't use it. I got to find that person. Um, but yeah, it's the same handle pretty much everywhere. Um, but yeah, that's where you can, you can find me. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. And Awesome. Hey, thanks so much, guys. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes.